Hi, I'm Beth. And I'm Leslie. Welcome to Quince. A little sweet. A little tart. And a little unexpected. Today is Wednesday, December the 25th, 2019. And Merry Christmas after our long time away. We have been away. We didn't mean to do that. It just happens. Yep. Uh, Beth has been busy. I've been busy. But we have the most beautiful Christmas day. We had lunch out on the porch and visitors and uh, more visitors from the uh, neighborhood came by. Oh, we had little beagle pups. Little beagle, little beagle dogs that came and begged and we had a really good time. Imagine that. In the Blue Ridges of Virginia, and we were sitting out on the front porch having lunch. There's many a Christmas I have pulled on my boots and taken a snow hike. Yeah, well, not this one. Not this one. So if we have time this afternoon, maybe we can take a little walk. Yes. We'll see what happens. Okay, Uh, what are we doing? What do we want to talk about today? Well, we are so lucky, Leslie. We have a guest today. We love guests. Absolutely. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. Yes. We have with us today Dr. Anita Puckett. And Anita comes to visit us every Christmas. I think this is the eighth year. Come travels down from Blacksburg, Virginia, about a, uh, about an hour and a half from now. Um, to get here on some windy roads, but it's a tradition, and we certainly are always happy to see her, especially when she brings chocolate cake from our daily bread. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Anita is a professor at Virginia Tech in the Appalachian Studies Department. Uh, that is no longer a department, I found out, which I think is sad, but, uh, that's just one of the ways that life unfolds in the university world. And since I also work for Virginia Tech, I know how that happens also. But Anita, it's so good to have you here. And always good to see you, even if it's just once, maybe twice a year. Has it been eight years? Yes, it yes. Has. It popped up on my Facebook. Eight years? Yes. Eight years. The very first time popped up on my Facebook memories this morning, and that was seven years ago. Oh, my goodness. I was thinking four or five. No. How life flies. But I love it. I love meeting you all. I love listening to your podcasts, you know, because you, you really bounce off of each other so very well on these topics, and you bring in all of these cool topics to talk about. So it's kind of a novel blog that you guys have going that is pretty amazing. Well, and I want to thank you for letting me join you on one today. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you here. Just to give you a little background on how Leslie and I got started, it all came from walking the dogs, <laughs> her dogs. And we'd talk and talk. And one time we just said, you know, we should be putting this down because Leslie's so full of history and uh, of this area and so knowledgeable about so many things. And she's like, well, we could do a podcast. And I'm like, what's that? (laughs) What did I know? It's been four years now. And we have recorded, I believe, our 51st. This will be number 52. So we're just honored you're here. 
Well, I'm honored to be here. You guys are great to hang out with. And if I were 20 years ago, I'd probably try to live over this way because it's a cool place and you've got cool people. Yep. And I'm sitting with two of them and enjoy you immensely and uh, totally appreciate your hospitality. And any time, it's actually chocolate cheese cheesecake. Mm. So any time you want chocolate cheesecake, you just holler at me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm supposed to talk at this point? You want me to Absolutely. talk about some stuff? Yeah. Absolutely. And we we left it open to you what you'd like to talk about. So we're just excited to hear. <laughs> well, I think we sort of decided to talk about this new book by my friend and colleague Robert Geip. And he just retired from Southeast Mechanical and Techn- Technical and, and uh, Community College over in Cumberland, Kentucky. And years and years ago, before I came to this part of the world, I taught there. So what he writes about in his two novels are very poignant to me because he's writing about the world in which I used to live. And it is an exciting venture that he's on. He's a very, very, very special person in his ability to... He's he's sort of a Will Rogers uh, replica when he talks. He'll have you in the floor in stitches talking about his past, talking about things he has done. But there's a very serious side to Robert. And he has produced two books, one of which, two novels, one of which is called Trampoline and has been out for a few years and has won some awards. I think it might have won the Weatherford Award from the Appalachian Studies Association. And now his new one that came out last year is called Weed Eater. And what he does that is not only is the novel really poignant and expressive and heartfelt, but he also calls it an illustrated novel because he doesn't just have pictures that illustrate the text. He has pictures that move the text along such that you have to read the pictures or look at the pictures with its captions in order to understand the plot. This is totally novel, all puns intended, and he is winning awards for it and making his stories come alive in a way they can't otherwise. So what I thought we would talk about today is this new book that I just finished teaching over at Virginia Tech as a professor over there, and I should take a minute and say a little bit about my background. Uh, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And my father's people were from eastern Kentucky and had moved there way back in the 30s and 1930s and 1940s in order to find work. And I say they moved there. I mean everybody moved. My parents, my grandparents, my grandmother's brothers and sisters, my grandfather's brothers and sisters, all of their children, all of their grandchildren. So we had everybody up there. And they created throughout my childhood a mythic place that they called Eastern Kentucky. But it was a mythic place that was positive to them, but not necessarily to the rest of the area of Dayton, Ohio, and Middletown, Ohio, and Cincinnati, and Troy, and all of the points in between and to the east and to the west. In fact, J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, comes out of that very same tradition in which I grew up. And it isn't positive. So I grew up in this kind of dichotomy in this world of cognitive dissonance where I love my father, 
but at the same time, I was in a world that condemned him very often because of the way he spoke or where he came from. But on my mother's side, which was German, then they were also condemned to some degree for being German. So how does this play out? And I spent my whole life incidentally and then actually trying to answer that question. So I went to the University of Kentucky, the first one in my family to go to college. We did not have any money. And then from there, I went to graduate school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I specialized in medieval English literature and found out, nope, that wasn't for me. And to shorten a long story, it's pretty boring unless you're in it, I ended up in anthropology at the University of Texas and decided to do my dissertation work in rural eastern Kentucky. Anthropologists have to go live in the communities in, that they try to understand. And I studied language. And so I finally finished my degree there. I taught at the community college where Robert Guype was teaching, and I got a job here at Virginia Tech in Appalachian Studies. So the latest thing that Robert wrote about in Weed Eater is deeply poignant to me because I have been spending most of my life trying to understand these people from this area, these folks, some of whom are distant kin of mine, and trying to make sense of it for the rest of the world. Robert's book helps to do that under the opioid epidemic that the region is facing. There has been an Oscar-nominated documentary by Elaine Shelton, who I know and like very much, called Heroines. You can get it on Netflix. It's about Huntington, which is the epicenter of the opioid crisis in Appalachia and, frankly, for most of the United States. Weed Eater is about rural Appalachia and southeastern Kentucky, frankly, in Harlan County, Kentucky, although he doesn't call it that. He calls it Kennard County. And in it, he gives us an insider's point of view of what it means to live in this area when everybody is stoned, not everybody is stoned, everybody is being affected by somebody who is on drugs. And I'm going to read you a little bit of it and then comment on it and then uh, try to see what we can get going in the way of conversation right here in this room about people we have known or about the situation more generally. The book begins with a young man named Gene G-E-N-E, and he has ties to Kennard County through kinship. They call him Weed Eater throughout the book, and he becomes a symbolic character that I will talk about here in a few minutes. But here he is, coming into Kennard County, and it says, the first day of July 1, no, I'm sorry, first day of July, I was thumbing the Keenville Road. I'd walked off another of Brothers' cleanup jobs, mine sludge up to my pant pockets throat raw, hands itching, and broke out. For eight dollars an hour, I told him I couldn't do it, told him I'd walk back to Kennard. He didn't like it and called me an ugly name, but I told him I'd make it up to him, and at the time, I thought I would. I got my first ride from a black-headed man in a Chevy pickup. He set me out at the Caneville Bridge, and I stood there a good while till a heavy-set preacher picked him me up, but he got a flat before we got to the pick-pack, and had to call his wife to bring the spare. I went in pickpack and got me a popsicle, come out, started walking. I walked a half mile when a man stopped and had the crazy on it. I told him I'd wait, and he gunned his silver 
Buick across the double yellow line into a red Ford heading the other way. The Ford flipped up on its side against the rock wall, and the Buick sailed down the ditch line toward Kennard a hundred hundred yards and hung up on a roadside, front wheel spinning, no skid mark in sight. Such is that common and oh four back when the painvilles poured down like February snow. Same year, one died in a bathtub, dry and blue as a pool as a pool chalk. Another they found dead in the sewer ditch in front of the frolly headstart. A lady's heart gave out, a needle in her arm, back of the Christian church, and a teacher died at Kettle Creek School, snorting a pill off her desk in front of a room full of kids. All that in Kennard County in a single year. And Kennard County, as Harlan County, had only had about 28,000 people in 2004. So that's a lot that's going on there in a little bit of time. So what happens in the novel is he has two main characters. He has Gene the Weed Eater, and he has Don Jewell, who is the heroine in his other book, Trampoline. And they tell the story back and forth between them of how people in their families and their communities are trying to make it and get high at the same time, and how they all dropped in. Not everybody, but so many do. So you're talking to Don's brother, Albert, who's trying to get people to get off of drugs. And what happens to Albert? He dies on an overdose. You have people like Don's mother, who's been an addict and trampoline, the first book. And she she gets Jesus, and she tries to stay off of the drugs, but it doesn't work. And in Weed Eater, she dies from this friend of hers, well, so-called friend, a drug buddy, is trying to help her by giving her a needle of heroin, and he gives her too much, and she conks out. The novel is about Dawn and Jean negotiating the world around them in terms of how, whether somebody next to them is straight, whether they're on oxycodone, maybe they're on meth, maybe they're on heroin. How do you live? And so the underlying theme of this book is that of not only how do you live, but how do you love? Because so many people in this novel are so keen on staying high, they cannot love one another. Everything goes to the next fix. So that means the kids, that means their children, like Dawn, that means the sober people in the community also have trouble loving someone else. In fact, they can't always do it because of the way they were brought up. So beneath all of this, as people are dying, as people are living, is how do we cope with, how do we deal with a situation in which families are destroyed, in which individuals are destroyed, in which the very future of Kennard County is up for grabs. Now what I'd like to do, if I can, without stumbling over my words, is read you a little bit more about the funeral of Tricia, who is Dawn's mother, the one in trampoline who was on drugs, then she got Jesus, now she's back on the drugs. She was killed with an overdose of heroin. And here is the funeral, because everything suffers. Everything suffers in the county when you're dealing with a tremendous percentage of the folks in the county who cannot stay sober or straight. Okay, then they've just been talking about the people at the funeral. This is Dawn talking. The other person at Mama's funeral was Mama. 
Looking at her funeral up was hard. Her face looked like instant potatoes had been in the fridge a week. Making us look at her in the open coffin seemed pointless, but maybe it wasn't because it sure did make me know she was really gone. Goldie Kelly's preacher come in. He was a good hundred pounds bigger than he had been when Mama got baptized, and his hair was thinner, and he had a look about his mouth like he thought he was a lot smarter and better of a person than he used to be. He started right in, not knowing Mama that well, lest I don't think he did, but he called her Sister Tricia and talked about her relationship with the Lord, talking about it like him and the Lord and Mama and spent a day in Dollywood together. The preacher said how when Mama wandered, he had prayed so hard for Sister Tricia, but that you know, friends, it's hard to know another's heart, and it's hard to stay on, you know, to, on the path, and that's why it was important to stay in the church to keep your church family close. Somebody said, Amen. And the preacher said a question, Amen. And more people said, Amen. And that warmed the preacher up, so he kept on talking, on being lost, and he got louder and started making huh sounds about every tenth word, and every everything was about the salvation. It made it hard to think of Mama, but I made myself. I thought of how when we still lived in the trailer after Daddy died, but before Mama fell apart, Mama used to keep flowers on the kitchen table. Mama took a hippie skirt that she got at the mission store and cut it open and used carpet tacks to tack the skirt to the ceiling, turning the tube lights orange and blue, hippie shapes like tears, and a microscope slide of one-celled animals met your eye when you looked up. When I was little, Mama liked to light candles in the old globe lamps. She liked to make things magic, especially at night, especially when we were waiting for Daddy to get home from work. And even after Daddy died, she did things to keep the light orange and golden and everything warm and brown. And she'd play Linda Ronstadt in Fleetwood Mac and thought things might be okay. And I remembered thinking that life could still be fun. I remember food tasting good and loving all kinds of weather and not being able to want to put my clothes on and get going in the morning. And things were okay pretty much until they weren't. And then she goes on to talk about the rest of the funeral. But until they weren't, and things weren't any good. Now, she had a brother named Albert. And Albert got on his high horse, started preaching to everybody to give up drugs. But he couldn't, and he was dead by the next Christmas of drugs. Her mamma died in the cave, not from drugs, but from the stress of being having to deal with all of her family falling apart. They had taken a hike in a cave, and they were coming out, they being Don, Mama, and Don's little girl, Nicolette. Nicolette, rather. Or maybe it was Nicolette. I don't know. Uh, and they come out, and Mama has been under a tremendous amount of stress, and she dies. And then all of these other people in the novel die. And her... Father's brother, yeah, her daddy's brother, Don's daddy's brother, is selling drugs. But he doesn't die in this novel. Meanwhile, we have around the edges, Jean, who is going around making money, weed-eating for people. And the novel then becomes symbolic with respect to what Jean is doing. So what Jean is doing is that he is keeping things neat and tidy. And what has happened in Canard County is that things cannot be kept 
need entirely. So what is Gene to do? He tries to do the good things. He tries to help people. He tries to get them around and off drugs, but to get them around so they're not killing themselves so much. And what happens is he can't take it anymore. And at the end of the novel, Gene says, I can't take it anymore. I'm leaving, and I ain't coming back. And he will not come back ever to Cunard County. So what happens to Dawn? Well, she and a friend named, a so-called friend named Hazel, go off, and they're going off to try to do adventures and get out of the county and see things. And in so doing, she has to tell her daughter Nicolette that she won't be back for a while. Daughter, when are you coming back to soon, dear? Soon. Well, soon, honey, soon. But she doesn't know when she's going to come back. So is she abandoning her daughter? So what I've tried to create in this, there's lots more in the plots. Going on a trip to Dollywood and all this money they found under Waterfall, which I believe is probably Bad Branch up there. And Blue Bear Mountain, which I'm sure is Pine Mountain. All of these different, or Black Mountain, rather, Black Mountain. All of these different places that weave together a story of loss, of social deterioration, and of incredible gloom. And a loveless world in which people pretend to love each other in which Don pretends to love her husband, Willett Bilson, over in East Tennessee, where she, while she probably in some way does love him, pretend is not the right word, but it's not the kind of love that we expect to see in the mountains and among mountain people. It's gone. The book ends, how do you live in this place? How can Appalachia continue when we know what's going on in Kennard County is going on and so many other places. How can the region continue to, to thrive? How can it come back? How can it do things that are positive? And the answer in the novel is, we're not sure, but we have to start with love. And we have to start with rebuilding ourselves. And how did this get started in the first place? Coal was down. People were unemployed. They had a long history, the coal miners do, of dealing with pain. And so here comes the pharma companies, and they're dropping Oxycontin on the, by the thousands. It won't hurt you. You're not going to be addicted. And of course they were. And people were very quickly. So now there is movements to sue these pharmaceutical companies. We'll see how the lawsuits come out. It's sort of like the old tobacco um, programs to, to get funds for uh, tobacco addiction and death. We'll see how it comes out. But how is the region going to survive? We can put in jobs. They're working on it. Uh, Pulaski County, Virginia, that we just, I just had an experience talking to the county supervisor, county administrator, and one of the supervisors, and they feel they're very strongly, they're making headroads. But beyond it is one of the most drug-induced counties in Virginia. How are they going to do it? They are positive. The leaders are positive. They can do it with small global companies that employ a few hundred people, and they're very positive. So how is this novel Weed Eater going to come out? Maybe he'll write a third one, and maybe it'll be more positive. But right now what Robert Guype does is that he takes Don's daughter, Nicolette, or Nicolette, and he has her say at the end, and I'm going to read it, because the novel would suggest that Don is abandoning her own daughter and that we have a loveless world. But she says... 
Nicolette says, the summer before I turned four, my mother saved two grown men from drowning, which she did. It's in the book. Saved them both at the same time on the same day. I'll never forget how strong she looked in the water. She looked like she might rise up like a dolphin and fly away, soar out into space with the man under each arm, plunge right into the sun, come out on the other side, mega strong and huge, super tan, and with the two, two men gone. I would watch her circle the earth, my giant uh, super tan mother, proud and solar-powered and titanic. And I would wave at her, and she would wave back at me with both hands, then flap her arms and fly in circles and figure eights and loop-de-loops in and out of the clouds. Then she would fly down through the window of her house and fix me chicken and dumplings and her hair sparkling with mist from the clouds. I've heard about the summer of 2004, especially that July, my whole life. So much happened. People dying. People going to jail. Mama getting in trouble with the judge and the President of the United States. I didn't tell you all about that one. Then I understand why Mama wasn't able to keep her promise to teach me to swim. My mother did a bunch of other things for me. A bunch. My mother told me about our family, told me what a hero my Granny Cora was, and what a good sweet man my father had been, and all kinds of stories about her daddy's family. She taught me not to be scared, and she told me I was smart, and she asked me to sing for her and always told me what an amazing singer I was. She kept me out of trouble and talked to me sweet when I didn't understand something. She always remembered what my favorite things to eat are and always made me feel like I came first. My mama gave me everything I ever needed. And then in an illustrated uh, drawing, he says, Don't let nobody tell you different. So he ends up with the fact there is hope, and there is the possibility of rebuilding this loveless world back into something that is typically mountain, and is typically something we have to, had ought to offer the world. We've got to get it back. So, start as the stock. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow is the word. Sounds very good. <laughs> I definitely want to read the book now. I had a student. For sure. I had a student who said it was, she very, very, very much enjoyed the book. It's hard reading because it's got dialect in it. Mm -hmm. But, for most people. Um, but it's, uh, it's it's one. It was nominated finalist for the Weatherford Award last year in Appalachian Studies, and it's going to win more awards. I mean, he's amazing. Robert Knight knows what's going on. Yep. So apparently, well, um, in our particular neck of the woods, drugs started being a problem in the sixties. <laughs> it it was just like suddenly in a wave and we have we had genetics a gene for alcohol addiction anyway uh that uh runs through different families mm -hmm. and so it was devastating you know the uh, i think it was more like lsd and uh, whatever the hard drugs were back in the 60s that can't, i was small so i it missed me but a lot of the teenage people that I knew on up into the early 20s were, I know several people that died in that time period. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know as much about 
the area now uh, because I don't know as many young people in the area, so I'm not sure about how things are now. Well, of course, the opioid addiction, that is where it differs from, you know, the sort of popular culture drugs. You know, yeah. I, I came well, of age in the 70s where, you know, people, everybody was smoking pot. And, well, but, that, but that, that's, to me, that's like um, cigarettes or marijuana, or marijuana cigarettes and alcohol is kind of that level. There's right. a deeper, exactly. more dangerous level. And that's what hit people in the 60s here. Really? Yeah. And mm. then, and it was just like kind of overwhelming at the time because we just didn't have the experience. Right. Nobody really knew anything mm. about it at the time. And, then, and of course, marijuana is, you know, I'm sure still pretty prevalent in the area. Well, yes. I mean, of course, it's practically. But it's more about, that's more recreational. Right, as opposed to, well, what I started to say, the difference with the opioid um, disaster that's going on right now is that it knows no age limit, Mm -hmm. and it knows no socioeconomic limit. I mean, the people who get hooked are everybody. Yeah. I mean, if they have that tendency to be hooked. And because so many people have been exposed to opioids, who hasn't had dental work? Who hasn't had surgery of some kind or, or whatever? And so for, you know, what, 25 years, 30 years, you've been given everything from Tylenol 3 to Percocets to, um, maybe not so much Oxycontin, which is what really, really ripped through uh, Middle Appalachia, Huntington, and Eastern Kentucky, was the fact that the Oxycontin was coming out. I mean, the one community in West Virginia with 300 300 residents and over a million prescriptions to Oxycontin. What's happened in Martinsville? Yeah, Martinsville is, is very, except it's a town of, well, now 15,000, but used to have, what, 60, 70,000 people. And yes, it did happen. Yeah, millions of prescriptions in in these tiny towns. Right. Relatively tiny towns. Which was, let's, let's take that straight back to the the source that's that's a pharmacology problem <laughs> i mean somebody was manufacturing somebody was marketing and somebody was selling so you know this is a problem that starts way way up in the wall street journal area mm-hmm. yes and and whereas when back in the day when it was heroin um or meth even, which I know that meth has been a real problem in this area. Right, in this particular but area. But that's, that's manufactured true. in people's homes or, or cheap motel rooms or, you know, somebody's barn. And heroin was coming f- into the country through being smuggled in. But we're not talking that. We're talking... Prescriptions where yeah. you walk into your local Rite Aid, Walgreens, Revco, whatever, uh, Walmart, and you just hand somebody a paper and they give you this medication drug 
that has now devastated entire counties. So how do you cure that? I mean, how do you? Jobs, yes, but it's not that there's not people who don't work who are addicted. Many people are addicted. You don't know who is addicted for the most part. Now, in Appalachia, I guess you do because it gets taken to the point where people die. Mm -hmm. And now they're dying because they don't, you know, the pills have been yanked for the most part. It's pretty hard to get a hold of a lot of, of the the pills. It's being watched. So now they're smuggling as well as manufacturing fentanyl. Yeah. And fentanyl is this opioid that is so many hundreds of times stronger than anything that people have had. And people are starting to drop like flies and whole lot more will before it's over. And so how do you stop that? You're looking at me and I don't know. I mean, you have to put in ways in which people, a lot of it is despair. At least in the old coal fields, which where that novel takes place, where I used to live, is a lot of it is despair, where you just don't see any future. You know, why should I quit? Life right. is a bitch. And you, then you get into these parties, you get into this cult where you have others in your group, and you, and you feed on each other, and you sure. keep it going. So I think uh, there's a lot of really basic issues having to do with self-esteem, with one's sense of purpose and identity, mm-hmm. and being realizing that you are a valuable person. The old coal fields, when you went underground, even if you hated it, you knew you were contributing something. And uh, so, but now it's not there. And surface mining, uh, the uh, uh, mountaintop removal replaced it somewhat in terms of keeping your identity going. But it's not the same as working that seam underground. And now it's mostly gone. Right, right. I and you know that reminds me of a line from Coal Miner's Daughter that has stuck the movie. Um, when you said you had you had three choices, you could work the line, or you could sign up on the welfare line, basically, or you move on down the line and you hit that hillbilly highway out of there. And of course, you know, I grew up in West Virginia, so you know it, it was the same same situation. Um, and a big part of it that made them such a vulnerable group was that, the despair. And, um, hey, if I can take this little pill and feel good for a couple hours, then, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But then they're hooked. And that's that's a whole different thing. Because it, it also reminds me of something I saw when I was just a young woman and this made the biggest impression on me when it came to and it was talking about alcoholics at the time but you know when you're an addict it doesn't matter what your poison is you're an addict and you will do whatever for that drug 
And in this scenario, this woman, a young woman who had a young child, whom she loved, but she was an alcoholic big time, and she was in treatment, one of the 28 days, you know. Um, and at one point, the doctor says to her, you can have this ounce, this vial of alcohol, or you can have a dime to call your daughter, your child. And that woman just cried and reached for the alcohol. And that's what happens in these minds. I don't know how you reverse that. Well, the person at the New River Valley Community, uh, Center Community, not Center, Community Outreach, whatever they organize, services, community services. We had a speaker come to one of our classes who was working in rehabilitation and in counseling. And the recovery rate, if you will, rehabilitation rate, he said for him was about 5%. Ah, that's... Unreal. Unreal. So, I'm not equipped to talk about it. All I can say is I think we have to start before people get started on it. Yes. The Nicolettes of the world. Yes. Nicolas. You know, I don't know whether it's mountain or how they say it. Right. Mountain or they say it standard. Um, But, uh, uh, and Robert doesn't know. He just knows there's hope. Or he would have put it in his novel. But how to deal with that and how to, to change it, um, it's a major issue. The Appalachian Regional Commission is focusing in on it, but I'm not sure. I haven't been paying attention to what they're doing because my work is now peripheral to it. I just know they're doing something, and chances are it's not a root cause rehabilitation. It's not a re- root cause effort. You know, probably want to put in, because that's what the ARC wants to do most of the time, is put in job training you know, better highways, better buildings, but things that don't really get at the underlying psychological issues. Um, if they can, they will. And there's a lot of money being poured into the mountains on the problem. But whether it can get at that, in my book, it is a sense of identity of who you are, a sense of where you're going, enough money to live on, and a kind of work that uh, gives you strength and the ability to say, I am a valuable person. Amen. I think I think you're exactly right. That it is a sense of purpose that will probably be... Not, not with the ones that are on it so much, mm-hmm. but keeping the other ones off of it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Man. Christmas Day. Yes. Yeah. But you have some things to say. Well, I just, um, I have a niece, or Ron's niece, that, um, has gone through all of the, um, I don't know her entire story, but I do know she pulled some prison time because of drugs. And, um, she got out, she got herself straightened out. Uh, She has two children. Um, her son John died of a, um, heroin overdose about four years ago. He was straight for nine months. Mm. And um, he died. The daughter, I think, has also had some struggles 
with drugs. They live in honey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, the mother has pulled pulled out of it. I mean, she has um, really, really fought, and it's been a battle. And uh, she's doing a lot of outreach stuff, which I think is her way of coping and healing. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, to lose a child, and of course, mm-hmm. the, and this child. I mean, he had. He was smart. He was. Uh, he had grandparents that loved him. He had a mother that loved him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I know. And to see all of these people shattered by his death, you know, was re- really, really tough to witness. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got insert here. My colleague, Dr. Satterwhite, Emily Satterwhite, would be in here. She would be talking, probably about politics, because what we haven't, we're putting the blame on the individual, like you've started it and now you're hooked. But as she would point out, is that the underlying political structure of the nation also influences this, into this kind of corporatization of everything, such that people's identities are lost within this kind of dehumanization that is going on, or what some people call deracination, that's been going on in these mono-economies that the coal fields represented and many other areas represented, such that until we change the political structure, the kinds of things we're talking about are not going to be able to be nourished and flourish and come about. Uh, so you can pour the millions of dollars that the ARC, the Appalachian Regional Commission, pouring into the region, that other groups are pouring into the region. But until we get a viable economy, a socio-economy, that helps us live as real people and not just being treated like the old underground minds did when a mule was worth more than a person. Mm-hmm. And now when the technology is worth more. So I think we're also at a tipping point where we've got to not only, this would be Cora, if she were here, she'd be going, amen, sister, you keep going. <laughs> um, that uh, the, the underlying system is such that until we change it, we're not going to be able to deal. You were asking me how to fix it. And while you were talking, I was thinking, now what would Emily say? And Emily would be on the underlying political structure, political economic structure, that makes it so easy to take away, to strip this sense of identity. Because if the companies move out, they come in, they get cheaper in China, they move out. You know, right. And although that's under Trump, there's all kinds of contestation about that, but it's still there. Is that what you do and how you do it is something that's being controlled by others at the very highest levels. And until that changes, we're not going to get anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, there's so many things. The corporate, the political, the education. Also, let's face it, the medical. This country's in a mess. Uh, back home in in the small town I grew up in, West Virginia, um, we have there now one of the largest, and that's not saying much because it's not real large, but drug rehab programs for the state of West Virginia. And it's called Opportunity House. And there's now several houses. It started out <laughs> as, as one, but now, you know, it, it has branched out. And a very, very good friend of mine is the director, and he is an addict who is, uh, he's been in recovery for years. Um, but he also just tried to run for, uh, 
I think it was House of Delegates or some some seat to to bring in. And of course, I remember my my brother as well as my brother-in-law uh, were on board of directors up there. My brother's a psychiatrist in West Virginia. He's retired now, but um, you know, so in his office, of course, we had a lot of our people coming in for treatment. Um, but at Opportunity House, it is much like AA is where they're helping each other. Mm-hmm. And that's the one way is to be accountable to each other, but also to be there. Hundred percent of the time for each other, and uh, so far, I mean, it's growing. It's growing by leaps and bounds for men and women. At first, it was just men, and then you know, the women. Where do we go? And they're they're trying to get in from all different states, and so obviously, we need more opportunity houses around too. Well, it seems like the Appalachian region has been hit harder than yes. other regions. And I think, like you're saying, there's, there's a whole lot, there's just a whole lot of stuff behind it. That's why it uh, was so devastating to this particular region. Because we're, it's kind of like already beat down by all the other things that were going on mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah, where uh, income is hard to come by these days. A decent income. And with coal mining, there were a number of people making 80, with overtime, making mm-hmm. 80, 100, 120 a year. But now that's gone. And then there was this whole problem of poverty in many of the areas, or lack of income. And it just stepped right into that. How do, how do I deal with this habit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, take a shot. Take a habit pill, take a shot. So... See what comes out. Yes. Young people who listen to this, come on in on the conversation. I'm sure you know something you can add. Yes. And there has, one thing that has sprung out of it has been some really amazing books. And like you said, the documentary that's on Netflix. Um, My friend um, Andrea Bernay at, at Virginia Tech, she wrote a really, really a good book about a young man who lived with them, her husband uh, and her, took him in. And he was an amazing poet, this young 18-year-old boy. And just, just amazing. And, of course, Beth Macy's book, Dope Sick, that has, you know, was on the New York Times bestsellers list. And she lives right here in, in Roanoke in this area. So there have there have been the arts that have <laughs> stepped in to to help. Personally, I think that is a big solution. You, you got to get band back in the school and you know creative writing and just all these mm-hmm. things that have been pushed aside because of budget cuts. But if you're going to reach the younger people, you've got to give them something else. Mm-hmm. And her family, so much of the time was it. When it's falling apart, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh, the foster children, the numbers in West Virginia right now are out of this roof. I mean, you just 
can't imagine. They can't place them. Grandparents taking care of their grandchildren. Oh, yeah. There's another one. So, so, but a lot of grandparents are hooked too. So, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. that's, uh, well, yeah, like you say, it's, it's, it's multi generational. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, there are around here, there are a lot of grandparents that are dealing with children, with grandchildren because of all kinds of mm-hmm. situations, and drones are part of those situations. Mm-hmm. Complicated world. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't say I'm looking forward to reading the book, but I certainly think it's a valuable book. It has its good points to it. Yeah, yeah. And but it's I, well, obviously well written. Well, I think what's important about it is his ability to get into the actual real situation uh, of the insider's kind of point of view. Right. That is so oftentimes, if it's written by some, they're, they're hung up on being cutesy or something. But he just lays it out the way he's experienced it. And And I like to learn things through novels, through fiction, because sometimes the nonfiction is even more painful, you know, because that that is the true facts. But if I can read it in a novel, it still sinks in, but in a different way. More through the heart than the mind. Yeah, I mean, if you read this book and if you... In my mind, if you read it and you're sensitive to it, as opposed to just skimming the pages, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to change. It's going to last. It's going to be sitting there for right. you to say, well, maybe they're in this situation. Maybe make you less judgmental over someone who's hooked. Maybe want you to want you to get more involved in being someone to solve or address the problem. Maybe open up new vistas. So instead of just bringing in jobs, to actually look at the underlying kinds of psychosocial conditions that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an educational book that sure. uh, even if it's not enjoyable in the sense of <laughs> yeah. you're not going to feel too good when you finish yeah. this book, but you're going to feel enlightened. Well, it's a, how to say this, it's a group of people that aren't really well known. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, when you read a novel, you're not reading about people like this at all. I mean, maybe um, once in a while there'll be a a minor character that is from a different socio-economic... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I read the wrong novels. Well, you read British cozy murder (laughs) mysteries. There's not too many of them around. But, you know... uh, when when you read modern fiction, it's not about people in um, lower middle class as much, uh-huh. mm-hmm. I think. I may be wrong. Well, and rural mountain or rural, even rural in general. Yeah, yeah, rural areas, uh, you, you're basically reading about. And, and it seems to be getting away. When I was younger, it seemed like everybody was from New York. <laughs> in the uh, in a novel, and and it does seem to be a little bit broader, and people are are, are writing more from their own experience and their own backgrounds. But there still seems like there's not a lot about. Well, lower there's always class. been pretty good Southern lit, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, well that's know. literature, but uh, well, know, no, and but this I is mean, probably more close to literature than. But I mean novels. But we're um, talking about right now stuff. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, charms for the easy life. I was just thinking, what's that? Kate, Kate Gibbons. Yeah. Who, and, and of course, there's always the sort of crazy in the family, and there's usually the alcoholic something yeah. or other in the family. But there's still more minor and, characters. Right. Right. Yeah. Rather than the um, one struggling yeah. with the. And, and if you read, of course, my, our cousin and, um, Regina and I, we love romance novels. And a lot of times that will be somebody from a lower middle class. Who finds the rich. Background. But she always finds this rich guy. <laughs> you know, and that solves your problem. So that's kind of, so, so this should maybe be a different direction that might would be a good thing. I think we should recommend this, Leslie, for our book club. I was thinking next about year. that. I'm not sure how easy it is to get a hold of, but we'll Oh yeah, it's all over it. Amazon. It's on everything. Because oh, I've okay. been Googling while we've been and talking. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's less than twenty bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. well our girls like to go to the library a lot of them. But, yeah, but we well, read so many books. Yeah. We'll have to ask the yeah. Librarian to order it, perhaps, yeah, or we'll, we'll we can get that. one or two. I meant to bring you a Rockcastle Gorge study, and I forgot. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we have filled our time. Uh, this has probably been the most intense discussion we've ever done. It's great. Thank yeah, you sure. so much, really and you do good. such a good job. I'd love to be sitting in one of your classes. Thank you, ma'am. So Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Some yes. people are just natural teachers. Though. Yes, they are. <laughs> so anyway, uh, our show notes can be found at quincepodcast.com. We also have a Facebook page uh, under Quince Podcast. Uh, we can be uh, also found on Stitcher Radio if you have that app on your um, tablet or phone. And we're also on iTunes under uh, Quince Podcast, or you might find us easier with Beth Almond Ford or Leslie Sheeler. And we're going to wrap it up and hope we'll be back sooner than the last time. Bye-bye. Well, I was going to ask if people can comment on the podcast. Oh, well, they can comment on our Facebook.